Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is uh, October 21st, 2013. This is episode 1231 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, but it's, uh, it's well, it's Monday, 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 because we got the uh, listener call show going today. We haven't had one in so long uh because of all the events going on in October and me being away that I decided to go ahead and do one Monday and we'll have one for few Friday as well this week um and get caught up on some things that you can tell from uh the workshop and several days of talking to people nonstop and uh guest instructing at the uh or assistant instructing at the workshop that we just did on permaculture my voice is a little strained so it's probably a good day for me to do less talking uh by letting the panel answer some calls and You know, part of this show will be your call, so that'll reduce the total usage of my voice, which is a good thing today. Anyway, before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Um, you know, Bulk Ammo is one of the companies out there that when you hear the name of their company, you kind of get it right off the bat, right? Bulk Ammo. Ammo in bulk. Great pricing, lightning fast shipping, and amazing, uh, amazing selection of ammunition. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor, the uh, sponsor that was uh, that was around before any other sponsor uh, was around, the sponsor that was here when there were no sponsors, the first one that stepped up and said, we want to sponsor your show. They were so early, in fact, that at the time they asked, I told them no, uh, not because I didn't want them, but because I didn't feel that the show was ready to take um, a true sponsorship yet. Uh, within a few months after that, though, we got up and running, and they've been with us ever since. That's five years, folks. In fact, their official five-year anniversary will be in January. There's not many five-year-old podcasts, uh, let alone uh, podcasts with five-year relationships with a sponsor. It's something special. Anything you need for your prepping, Safe Castle probably has it. Take them, uh, check them out today. Safe Castle Royal, available at safecastle.com. Um, next up. I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you love what we do here and uh, you want to support what we do here, the primary way we pay our bills isn't really through sponsorships. It's a small program with sponsors, very few number, uh, low number of sponsors that I take, and I charge them way less than I could at this point. Uh, my goal with our sponsors is to make sure that they are an added service to our listeners and to make sure they're really awesome people and that you guys get incredible service from them. That's, that's what we want from a sponsor. And um, the way I do that is through listener support. And what I did with that is I took all of the sponsors that were willing to and got you a discount from them. And then I took all the people that wanted to be sponsors that we don't have any room for and got you a discount on those as well. And uh, so it's a great product that pays for itself, but you also support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members of the Member Support Brigade banner, Military Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service. If uh, you email me before you join at jack at the com, put service discount in the subject line, and in one or two sentences tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did, I'll send you a discount code to thank you for your service. That also applies to people like uh, first responders, like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys uh, qualify for that as well. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic. I've got to get some updates before we start taking your calls. Number one, Mulligan Mint. Um, there's been some recent decisions made in the litigation with Mulligan Mint, and not all of it's good. 
Uh, it's not the end of the world, but it's, it's not great either. Um, they're still fighting the best they can. They're working on some things in some roundabout ways. Maybe the recent bad news might be good news, but they haven't really figured out how to make that work yet. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now that if you order silver from Mulligan Mint right now, you are putting uh, some risk into it. So I, I, I personally would advise you at this point um, to not order silver from Mulligan Mint. Uh, it's very hard for me to say that because I love Rob and I want to help him and I want to continue to fight. But I'm going to say that uh, if you do, I would look at it almost like um, you're just flat out you're taking a risk by making an order for silver. They're very light on inventory. They have orders yet to fill. They're doing everything they can to fill those orders. Um, but they don't have enough silver to meet demand right now. And Rob called me this week, of course, or last week. It had to be a week while I had all this going on to tell me that. Um, and uh, I decided that today I would come out and tell you that basically it's a risk order. But I would also tell you this. If you still want to support them, I do have a way you can do that without risk. And get something really cool. What they do have in huge inventory right now is copper. And copper sentinels are available. You can get a roll of copper sentinels for 40 bucks. That's 20 of them for 40 bucks. Um, and that is guaranteed same day shipping. The day you order and they get your payment is the day they ship. Guaranteed. So there's no risk with that. Um, they do make a good margin on copper. And if you want to help them fight and get uh, Copper Sentinels, now's the time to do it. The Copper Sentinel coin is uh, is really an amazing coin. It's one of the coolest things ever created. And the Sentinel itself is one of the coolest things ever created. And I'll be honest, maybe Mulligan loses this fight. I mean, it's possible. And if they do, then, you know, will we have Copper Sentinels ever again? I don't know. So I would say this, if you, if you want, you know, pick up a roll, pick up five rolls, get a discount. Uh, you know, you can pick up 500 of them if you want to while, while they're available and use these to share the message of our show. Every citizen is Sentinel and if 300 can stand, what can 55 million do? It's, it's with no happiness that I, that I come out and I tell you this today that, that Mulligan is, you know, it's a fighter on the ropes that's still in the fight. That's the best way I can describe it right now. So if you, uh, if you want to help them, if you want to help them continue to fight and you want to get some really cool copper, share the message of the Survival Podcast and the Sentinel. Um, get them while you can. And hopefully, you know, that turns into get them as long as you want them. But for right now, um, I'm going to tell you, it's get them all you can. And I'm being completely honest with you when I do that. Um, next up, I want to uh, go ahead and cover our history lesson of the day. And, of course, this is episode 1231, so what happened in the year 1231? Well, something quite interesting if you are into survival and understanding that tragedy can strike any time. Listen to this. After a bizarre weather phenomenon of yellowish clouds and dust chokes the air around Hagunzhou, Song Dynasty, China, obscuring the sky and the sun, a fire breaks out at night in the southeast of the city, which continues into the next day. Fighting the flames is difficult due to limited visibility. When the fires are extinguished, it is discovered that the entire district of some 10,000 houses in the southeast of the city was consumed by the flames. 10,000 houses burned to the ground on April 9th, 1231. Uh, about the same time, Mongol troops crossed the Yalu River into Korea, which was then under the Goryeo uh, Kingdom. 
So the Mongols have not just moved into China now. They've moved into Korea. They're heading into uh, modern-day parts of Russia, Siberia, uh, moving into uh, even some of the, I guess, the, uh, the stands at this point. So the Mongol Empire is truly surging. Uh, but in China, uh, again, 10,000 fires burned to the ground in a day. Uh, just, just another reminder that, uh, disasters, even massive ones, are nothing new. And that we haven't figured out how to prevent them, uh, from happening either. So, uh, keep that in mind as you're preparing. Again, the year 1231. And let's go ahead now and take that first call. Hey, Jack. It's Melissa in Illinois. This time I have a question on how to get family and friends on the permaculture bandwagon. And I'm not doing the whole attack with why it's good and, you know, talk, 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 and read this and read that. I'm just trying to show them by what my husband and I are doing on my pro- our property. But it's a little bit discouraging when I just had dinner with my dad and he said, you know, I would really recommend, I know you want to do this whole plant here and plant there thing, but while you're doing that, maybe you should just take a big patch of your five acres and row crop it just so you you get some production while you're doing that. And I'm just, it's really discouraging to hear him say that. And um, I, I have a blog now and I've told them about it and I, you know, I'd hope they'd started reading it, but it's obvious that they're not reading it if they still are saying stuff like that. I didn't know if you had any advice on how to combat that or, you know, try to, help them understand a little bit more, or if it's just to continue to do what we're doing and show them, you know, eventually they'll see that, yeah, this is this is an alternate way that does work. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Bye. Now, there's a lot of layers going on there with some things. First of all, The first question you have to ask yourself when you're trying to convince somebody of something or win them over or something, does it really matter? Does it, does it even matter? And, you know, it matters to you because of your parents and you love them and they love you and you want them to be proud of you and you want to share things with them and all. But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. I mean, that, that's, and, and this is not about permaculture, folks. This is about a lot of things, political arguments, et cetera. Um, unless, The person changing their mind is going to result in the person doing something that's actually productive for themselves, for you, or for others. It doesn't really matter that they don't agree with you. And in most political arguments, that's the case. And there's a lot of stress in families and in friendships and in extended families over political disagreements. And, and I'm kind of bored with political debate. Especially like that, because it, it, it doesn't do anything. And in, in this case, this isn't politics, it's permaculture, but it doesn't really do anything either. The next thing is, um, he's not totally wrong. I mean, he, he the scale might be off, but um, there's nothing wrong with growing crops in rows. I mean, in of itself, it's not a terrible thing. It's the way that we do this and the practices by which we do this and ignoring things like contour and water harvesting and all. So it's not a horrible thing that you might, you know, row crop, depending on what that means. If that means break out the plow and plow up three or five acres and plant it to corn, then, yeah, that's a problem. 
But if he means what you think of more along the lines of a large, typical garden that's done in rows, that could be part of a permaculture system. So it's very dependent on what he means. Um, but it sounds, when you use words like row crop, generally you know something about ag, and maybe he's coming from that mindset. And yeah, that's probably not what you want to do, but it's still not a problem that he doesn't get it. Most people aren't going to get it. And if it is true that I'm picking up that he knows something about ag, he's less likely to get it. He's almost, it's almost impossible for him to get it before he sees it in a fully functioning, mature system, which will take three to five years to truly get up to maturity. Um, so, again, it's not a problem, and he, you can't expect that he would understand it. As for how you win people over, you simply you know, lead them to logical conclusions if it's worth it and if they're open. If they're not open, you do nothing. But let's say they're open, and they're like, well, I, I just don't get how this will work. You know, and it sounds like he's giving you a little bit of, I know, sweetie, this is important to you, like dads do, right? And I said, here's, like I said, there's a lot of layers here. There's also what's called powdered butt syndrome. Parents often always will see their children as, well, they can't possibly know more than me. They can't possibly be smarter than me. And there's always a part of them that sees you as that little boy or little girl and, and, and that you need, you need guidance and they just don't know. And it, they won't take advice from you about money. That's for sure. And what I mean by powdered butt syndrome is once somebody's powdered your butt, um, they don't like to take, uh, they, or they, it's almost impossible for them to comprehend. Uh, you could really be a lot better than them at something, except, especially something they've already determined they know everything they need to know about. Now, <clears throat> if you went to school for, let's say, uh, designing rockets, right? Rocket science, you're a rocket scientist. It's very easy for a parent who's not a rocket scientist to accept that their child went to school and the system enabled them with knowledge that they're clear on the fact that it exists and what it does that they don't have. And that's okay and that's acceptable because the, an institution with state sanctioning gave you this special knowledge that they're actually partly responsible for because, but this permaculture thing to a parent is like, well, it's just some hippie thing or whatever. It's like organic or, and they'll never understand it. I almost think that it's impossible for somebody to truly understand permaculture just by being told about it. That on some level there has to be an experiential component to it. You have to experience it. And there has to be some uh, desired true effort and study. Because it's so counter to everything that we think we know that it's impossible until you choose to learn. So you're not going to win them over to your way of thinking um, with simply explaining it. And again, it's not a problem. I'd, I'd let it be. And I would also say things like, if I really wanted to have the conversation, like when he said, well, I, you know, why don't you row crop and get something along the way? Well, why do you think I need to do that? <laughs> which the answer will be because it you know, produces now. So the, then the question, which is fair back, is do you have something producing relatively quickly? Are you growing some annuals in places? Are you doing tank gardening or you know, a traditional, uh, traditional raised or non-traditional raised beds, and are you putting some things together that are putting in some instant productivity or rapid productivity? And say, well, we have that. See, here's where it is. And well, and you know, we're going into fall now, and next year these are where these things are going, and they'll be productive right away because of these things. Here's the things we've already planted, and next year they'll go into production. Um, and understand, like, you're not farming, and maybe he needs to understand too. We're not farming. 
You know, and where do animals go in this system, and what is the goal of the system? But it's only if the person wants to learn. And it, it frankly sounds like your dad's got a good case of powder butt syndrome and doesn't really want to learn. Then just let it be and do and do. And I'll tell you, the more I learn about design and development and uh, get ideas and get concrete planning for what I'm doing with my property, the less I care about who's president, the less I care about whose stance is what on what. Because I've, I've come to realize that they're all liars. And, and you might, well, how does this relate to your, your dad's question? It, it, it actually does because it gives you a channel for your energy that right now you're spending like trying to convince somebody of something and it puts it into productivity. Because what I'm telling you is you'll have that same epiphany and more and more you won't care. And it was funny that a few political conversations came up during the workshop we recently had. And people were like, what do you think, Jack? I don't care. Like every mental piece of energy I put into something that isn't going to matter can be put into something that is going to matter. So I, I don't really care who the president of France is or whatever or what he said. And so with your dad, it's not you don't care. It's that you're not going to let it suck the energy mentally. If he says something like that, you got to kind of look at it back the same way. He's thinking, oh, honey, you just don't really get it. I know you're trying. And your your response can be nice, but in your mind you have to think, dad, I know you just don't get it. And um, so I'll show you. And that's what it's going to take in most instances with most people that are having a hard time even understanding or grasping permaculture. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. John, West Virginia again. I was going to uh, ask you, I have some uh, propane wall heaters. Uh, just they man on the wall, run off propane. I'm wondering if I could plumb them up using air hose. 3H air hose, 120 PSI to a gas line. That that way I won't have to run copper, this or that. All right, thanks a lot. Um, that falls under the headline, I don't know and I ain't touching that one, but I bet Stephen Harris knows. So, Steve, what say you? John from West Virginia. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Now, for those of you who don't know, in the South, it's common to have a natural gas or a propane heater mounted in the wall in each room or each major room because they have such a low heat load down there. And uh, it'll be either a blue flame heater where it's literally a blue flame behind glass or it'll be an infrared radiant a heater where it shoots propane or natural gas through one, two, three, or five ceramic bricks that have thousands of holes in it, and it burns on the surface of the brick and heats the brick up red hot and throws radiant heat into the room, and that's my favorite type. So that's what John's talking about, and that's what he wants to know. He wants to know if he can run airline, which is regular airline hose line that you'd use for filling your tires through his walls and to these heaters instead of using copper or iron lines. Well, technically, the airline is rated at 150 to 250 PSI. It has a burst pressure. It'll blow at 1,250 PSI, so almost 10 times as high. What is the pressure of the gas John's going to be running through? 0.14 PSI 
four inches of, inches of water is the typical pressure of natural gas or propane running through a line to a heater like that. So the hose can handle it. And no, the molecule won't leak through the hose or anything else. If it can hold air, it can hold methane, or it can hold propane just as good. So pressure-wise, it'll work. Uh, Chemical-wise, it'll work. However, John wants to run the airline through his walls, and this is just asking for problems. According to your code down there, John, you're going to have to run copper lines or iron pipelines to your heater inside the house. And this is the way I would do it, okay, because it leaves no room for an accident, no room for a leak. Propane can leak and it settles low. You can actually have pools of propane settled down your stairs, in your basement, in low points of the house, and these are ripe for ignition. Uh, natural gas is actually lighter than air and it'll float. You can fill a trash bag full of natural gas and it'll float, float away like a balloon. So this is especially dangerous with propane. So I'm going to recommend that you go with the copper fittings and the copper line in your house. Now, in an emergency situation, I have no problem with using an airline, and I have done this. I have run natural gas in my case, or you can use low-pressure propane, which is propane after the regulator, through an airline, an air hose, to an infrared natural gas heater or a blue flame natural gas or propane heater, and it works fine. In fact, it kept my house in Michigan warm for six weeks in February and March, the coldest months, until I could get someone to really fix my furnace. Someone who just wasn't out to rape me and say, oh, you need a whole new furnace, which is what everyone said. Finally, I found a guy that said, oh, your furnace is just dirty. We need to take it apart and clean it. And my furnace is still operating perfectly, you know, to this day. So um, in an emergency or a situation like that, I got no problem with it. Now, if you got children who are going to pull on lines and everything, this is something for you to think about. Or if you got a dog that likes to chew on everything he finds, this is for you something to think about because the airline might not work for you. So, John, yes, use airline with worm connectors to screw them down in the emergency, but use full copper or iron pipe when it's running through your walls. Now, speaking of heat, Paul Wheaton is a member of the expert panel with me, and I have all four of his DVDs on rocket mass heaters available now at rocketstove1234.com. And guess what? The MSB discount works on it. Just use the MSB discount for knowledge publications in the MSB area on www.rocketstoves1234.com, and you can get the MSB discount on his DVDs, and this will really heat your house. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel saying thank you. Call in some more questions. Well, that's a great answer from Steve because it's uh, different than my answer. It would have been don't do it. It's a bad idea, and it's basically... His answer is don't do it for permanence. It's a bad idea, but here's an emergency situation uh, where it might be a viable idea and how to do it without you know burning your house down. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. This one's also for Steve, so as soon as it's over, I'll go right into Steve's answer, and then I'll be back, and we'll keep rolling on through today. 
Hey, Jack, this is uh, Josh from Kentucky, and I've got a question for either yourself or uh, expert panel member uh, Stephen Harris concerning using propane um, as a backup uh, heat source or for cooking as well. Uh, my question is this. I've got a house uh, that I rent that is powered entirely by electricity, so electric stove, electric heating, um, et cetera. And, uh, you know, for wintertime use for emergency power outages, of course, I understand battery backups using cars' uh, battery or using a generator. But as far as uh, maybe a more economical or effective um, backup source for indoor heating and cooking, I've been looking at propane space heaters uh, that you can, you know, for the heating aspect or propane or butane hot plates. And really, I'm just wondering, you know, what are the the pros and cons of using something like that? You know, could you take a 20-pound cylinder, uh, set it outside, run a remote, um, you know, remote tube in through a window and hook up to the uh, propane space heater to heat a room? Um, You know, similarly, uh, indoor-safe butane or propane hot plate or stove, is, is that an option? And uh, if these are options, you know, what are the best, you know, what are the ones that, that you would recommend uh, as far as being the best uh, to actually buy? Um, anyway, thank you very much. Bye. Josh from Kentucky. Thank you for calling in. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Now, what I would do for you is I wouldn't put the tanks outside. For barbecue tanks, just get the heaters that go on top of the tank itself. It screws onto the tank and it sits above the tank and I'll have one or two heaters on that you light and it'll throw propane heat and infrared heat into the room or better yet onto yourself. They just screw onto the tank above the tank and these are space heaters and you can have the propane barbecue tank in the house. I would not put the cylinder outside and then run a, a tube into the house through an open window. Now, for cooking off propane, there are adapters and hoses, usually at Walmart, that will go from a full barbecue tank of propane and reduce it down to to the connector that is of, of a Coleman propane stove or a hot plate. Hot plates are generally electric um devices but i know what you're talking about a, a coleman propane stove i think propane is an excellent source of backup heat and it's about the only way to go for backup cooking especially when you're planning on your preps being only for a month or two let me address this a little bit in a few minutes Heck, if you are, if you just get a propane stove that screws onto one of those one pound green propane bottles, Coleman makes them and they're at Walmart too, then one person can get by with only two or three propane bottles for a month of food storage if you're just talking about cooking soups and warming water for oatmeal and rice and beans, etc. But you're talking about heating rooms, so you're going to be going with barbecue tanks and the screw-on propane heaters. So if you are all electric, propane is the way to go. Either the one-pound green cylinders or in barbecue tanks with either the heater attached directly to the tank or with a hose adapter to make it run to a Coleman um, uh, stove. Coleman makes all of these adapters and hoses as well, so this is safe. I'm not talking about jury-rigging something going from a barbecue tank to a Coleman um, propane burner. 
This is what they make. They sell it, and it's usually shelf, on the shelf at Walmart, and it works. Now, a word of caution. If you have a propane space heater in the house, it's an open flame. It's hot. A child could get burned. But since I know Jack and what he says about teacup kids, and you do, you guys do as well, I'm just going to quit right there. So try to get propane heaters that have some oxygen sensors in them so they shut off the propane if the heater burns up too much of the oxygen in the room. If you don't have one of these, uh, keep a window cracked or the door to the room open. Don't try to heat the whole house with this. Remember this. Don't heat the house to heat the room to heat the person. Don't heat the room to heat the person. Just heat the person. So keep your propane heater close to you, radiating on you. This way you can run it on low and still keep warm. And make sure there are no teacups that get close to it. Now, the other thing you could use for cooking, but you have to use this outside, is a rocket stove. These run on twigs and sticks and wood and you can easily, that you can find easily. And I have rocket stoves at rocketstove1234.com. Now, personally, this is going to surprise you, I'd go for propane for short-term storage. If you're talking about three days to three months of food and water, Propane will work just absolutely fine. I mean, it's so effortless. You just you turn it on, light it, cook. You can turn it up and down real easily. And you turn it off when you're done. It's when you get to that period where you're looking to four months to a year of food that you look at things like rocket stoves and other stoves that use wood wood as a fuel as a fuel that you can find because you don't want to store that much propane. You, and you want to have two as one, one as none. So this is my advice for you, Josh. Thank you very much for calling in. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Uh, talk to you guys later. Call in some more questions. Great answers with lots of detail and uh, knowledge backing up all uh, statements by Steve Harris as usual. Let's go on and take another one of your calls. Hey, Jack, uh, this is One Green Man from South Texas. I just thought that you and your listeners might like to know that you have gone, uh, I don't know if you, well, I guess you're already global, but you're on network TV now. Uh, in the, the TV show on CBS Elementary, uh, featuring, um, Sherlock Holmes in a modern form on, uh, episode three, I believe it is, season two. Um, 14 minutes and 55 in, they're about to enter a, I guess maybe a hacker's house or, or apartment or something like that. And on the door, there's a sticker of your survival podcast, uh, guy with the headphones and sunglasses. So, uh, you might check that out. Uh, I couldn't believe it when I saw it, but, uh, fun for you, I'm sure. So anyway, um, I don't know if you'd get any royalties from it, but uh, at least you get a good kick out of it. So congratulations. Take care and enjoy listening to you. Bye. So I mentioned this on the air last week. I figured I'd put it up again this week, though, because a ton of people have been emailing me about it still and telling me and calling me and texting me, those of you that have my cell number, and on and on. So I figured, one, if I put it out again, maybe more of you will know that I know. And I don't mind getting the emails and the calls at all, but you won't have to worry about letting me know because uh, you know that I know that you know that I know. 
Um, but the other thing is just I did find out more about the storyline, and the storyline is actually that, like, the hacker chick that's in the story is, uh, you know, hooked up with some guy that's like this murderous guy, and she's being used by him, but there's no... It's not like this person's ever presented as being good or anything less than kind of a little uh, mentally deficient. So it's not like we uh, we got any kind of presentation in a positive light. Uh, but like I said, I still see it as kind of a flattering thing um, that it was used in such something such a huge production as, as a you know a show on CBS uh, on uh, you know prime time. It's not like it was some uh, you know off hour show or something. It's a prime time show with millions and millions of uh, viewers. I don't think anybody that saw it wouldn't know any like even take notice of it unless they already knew who he were. So I don't know that we get any real notoriety out of it, but I think what it does show is show the growing notoriety of the survival podcast brand and our community. And I'm I, I just have this feeling that someone in the props or design or set construction department there used it not because like they looked something up and found something kooky and thought, oh well we'll use this. It's probably somebody who listens to us. And if you if you do And you're in any way responsible for this uh, inside the staff. I'd love to just get a quick email from you to let me know uh, because I think it's awesome uh, that we were you know put on a show like that. And, and the reality is, like I said before, is would it be unreasonable to say that somebody with a bent toward the eccentric uh, or the anarcho world or whatever would listen to Survival Podcast? And the answer is, of course not. It's it's totally plausible. In fact, you know, many of us are anarchists, but I'm saying, you know, maybe like that, that hacker, anarcho, you know, active, let's fight the system thing. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's not what we advocate, but it's, uh, it, it's quite possible that we would have listeners that would fall into the, you know, tinfoil hat brigade, et cetera. So even if the person was further off the reservation, so to speak, than they were, it still wouldn't bother me. Um, it'd be like, you know, why would you be bothered that, you know, that you would be featured like that? So I've had a few people ask me like, you know, they did trademark infringement or they, you know, violated your copyright or whatever. Uh, brief use of an image like that, uh, really falls under fair use. Um, I do it all the time with other people's material, uh, generally audio wise, you know, tr attribution, et cetera. Um, I, I'm not about to turn around and say it's not okay for somebody to do it with mine. If they were putting it up as like the new CBS logo or like CBS did a podcast and uh, they, they used it for their brand, then I'd have an issue. But to use it as a representation is, is completely cool with me. And I think it's very cool that we were featured that way. Let's uh, take another call. Hey, Jack. This is John New Hampshire with uh, an expert counsel question for Chef Keith Snow. Uh, Chef Keith, uh, can you give some recommendations on cookware uh, I have a bunch of Walmart crappy stuff and I'm just tired of tired of having the junk uh, I know Alton Brown said a long time ago that he recommended all clad cookware uh, wondering if he thought that stuff was good and uh, thanks for the, for the response hey John from New Hampshire it's Chef Keith Snow here to answer your question about cookware first of all thanks for calling it in and uh, to the TSP audience in general I am sure there are many more of you that have cooking or related questions, so why not call them in? I'm a little lonely here, folks. What do you want to know? Now, John, uh, that's a great question. What cookware to use? And, and I've always told people that, uh, for instance, I was a ice hockey player growing up, and I played ice hockey from the time I was a little boy all the way up uh, into college. I played Division II college ice hockey. And during that time period, um, my dad was the one that, 
bought me equipment. And I was always the type of kid that had slightly beat up equipment. And uh, I made sure that I never washed it either. So when you when I got to the locker room and opened up my hockey bag, boy, did it stink. And I got to tell you, I was proud of it. I wanted it to smell. And uh, we used to, you know, these kids would show up and play hockey. And, uh, you know, they had rich parents or whatever. And they'd have on the shiny new helmet and perfect pants and gloves. And mommy would launder the, the shirts. And they'd smell like, you know, downy fresh. And this kid would get out there and of course he looked the part but he had no skills so that would be the that would be the one that we picked on extra hard so i've always um thought you know with sports you know it's more about how you play than how your equipment is but that does not absolutely does not hold true for cooking now i hope that illustration uh helped to demonstrate how serious i am about this uh you cannot cook very well with bad equipment and for instance knives i've been cutting um and cooking for well over 25 years professionally of course i'm used to working with you know the the best knives that are out there yet you'd figure with all those fancy chefy knife skills that i could probably cut with any old knife and sometimes you know i go back to visit my mom or Somebody like a, a friend and you, you get into the kitchen and they've got these just completely useless knives and it is darn hard to cut. I mean, I cannot duplicate um, my normal knife skills with cheap knives. Now, the same goes for cookware, even more so. And you mentioned that Walmart junk. Most of that junk is Chinese made junk and it's junk. And what happens when you cook with pans like that? Is number one, you got a lot of different, uh, uneven spots, hot spots. Um, those cheaper type pans will burn your food and they also will not produce, uh, certain aspects that you will get from proper cookware, whether that be caramelization or a proper saute. There's so many different facets of cooking that require, um, proper cookware. Now, um, you mentioned Alton Brown. I've actually um, shot a TV show pilot in Alton Brown's kitchen down in Atlanta um, many years ago. And uh, indeed, it was stocked full of uh, all-clad cookware. Now, all-clad is excellent cookware. And I have, um, I think, two or three pieces of all-clad. And I've had them for a long time. And they do perform really well. However, uh, what's happened is there's been a lot of players come into the cookware uh, market with uh, brands of cookware that are a lot less expensive than All Clad or, or some of the other ones, and they perform as well or, in some cases, even better. So if you've got the dough, hey, you can't go wrong with All Clad. I'm going to tell you that right up front. Uh, if you've got the dough, the best cookware to get is French copper cookware. There's a couple of brands. One of them is, is actually uh, from Belgium, and that one is called Falk, F-A-U-L-K, I believe. Um, the type of cookware I have a lot of is called, um, now I'm going to forget. Oh, boy, and I'm far away from the kitchen. Uh, it's French Maviel, that's it, Maviel. Maviel cookware from France. This stuff is bomb-proof. And what you'll notice about it, and this is how you can tell, uh, you put 
a good piece of cookware uh, over the burner and it's ready to cook really fast. And on a good piece of French cookware like this, you just produce better results. When you want to take that, you know, piece of, uh, uh, Pacific halibut and you want to put a little oil in the pan and put that fish down and, and get a really nice brown, golden brown crust on it and you want to turn it over and pop the whole thing into the oven. I'm saying the whole skillet right into the oven, they're oven safe, and they're just going to produce really nice results. Now, um, a pan like that is not cheap. I mean, you could you could pay for a 10-inch skillet like that $250. So that's why I emphasize if you've got the dough, go for the French um, copper. It looks awesome. You know, The only thing is every so often you have to take barkeeper's friend or barkeeper's helper, whatever it's called, and you'll have to shine it up because it'll tarnish very quickly and it'll look kind of ugly. But, you know, if you're going to have a dinner party or whatever, or if you've got the pots and pans hanging on a pot rack, you know, I don't know, once a month you just scrub it with barkeeper's helper. It'll look gorgeous again. Uh, but it'll last forever. You'll give it to your great, 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 great grandkids. Now, another alternative, um, you can look for brands like Good Housekeeping or a brand that I um, have a lot of. Uh, interaction with is called Anolon, A-N-O-L-O-N, Anolon. This stuff is made in Thailand, and it's an American company from California, and they've supported um, harvest eating over the years by sending cookware sets, and um, we shot our TV show exclusively on Anolon cookware. And it's much, much, much cheaper than, say, all clad, or definitely cheaper than the French cookware, you can get a good set of it, maybe like a 10-piece set for, I don't know, anymore, maybe $299, something like that. And uh, they've got really good cookware. It's well-made. One thing you want to look for, particularly like uh, with saute pans or stock pots, if you've got a handle that attaches to um, a saute pan or a pot, what have you, and you don't see those rivets come through the material, do not pick it up. Now, a lot of times they'll they'll build up the outside of the handle so it looks like it's got real beefy rivets, but that thing is just, you know, electronically welded on there somehow. But you want through rivets. That's something to cook for uh, to look for in all of your handles, um, whether it be long handles or short handles on, you know, a big stock pot, you want through rivets on the cookware. You definitely want to try to find 1810 lined, um, pans and you'll see 1810 stainless on French copper. You'll also see it on, um, you know, all stainless steel pans like, um, like all clad or Anilon, um, good housekeeping. There's plenty of brands. A good place to shop is cooking.com. Um, or you can go to analon.com and order f- from them. Um, so there's, there's plenty of good cookware out there. Now, another thing that, um, I'll be the first one to tell you is cookware is more than just, you know, a couple of skillets and a pan. It's hand tools. It's, um, you know, strainers. It's knives, cutting boards. Look in your local yellow pages for a restaurant supply. And most, you know, decent-sized cities will have a restaurant supply store. And uh, except for the one in Montana here, most of them are pretty reasonably priced. Now, I used to go to one in Greenville, South Carolina, and it was a big one. And you can go in there as a member of the public. A lot of times they'll ask you for, you know, what's your tax ID number or whatever. If you've got a, if you've got a company, you can give it to them or you give them your Social Security number, whatever. 
but they will allow you to go in there and buy the same exact stuff that restaurants would buy. You can get decent cookware from them, but you can also get really good prices on things like, um, you know, uh, slotted spoons, spatulas, stuff like that, and look for good quality things. I would avoid buying those tools because those are equally important tools like that at, at places like Walmart and all that. So try to buy them at either restaurant supply. Um, you know, sometimes Target has some good stuff. Definitely, uh, and again, unless you're just oozing money, you, you probably want to stay away from a place like Williams Sonoma who, while they have incredible quality stuff, you're going to pay top dollar for it. But um, what I was getting at is also don't be afraid to drive around on Saturday morning and look for yard sales. I have found just I can't even tell you how many pieces of tremendous cookware, whether it be um, stainless steel skillets, cast iron skillets, all types of cookware can be found literally for just pennies on the dollar at yard sales and swap meats and things like that. So... Yes, you definitely need um, good cookware in order to, to cook well. It's not like uh, my hockey example there. You, you need good, good cookware and think of it as an investment and uh, try to buy the best quality um, tools that you can get and they'll last you a long time. I hope that answered your question. And uh, I want to thank everybody out there in TSP land. Don't forget to check out my website, HarvestEating.com, also the Harvest Eating Podcast. And uh, I'm assuming this will play in October. We are offering free shipping on everything in the Harvest Eating store as long as the total is $40 or more. So you can get a master pack of the spices that Jack talks about a lot and uh, not pay any shipping. So I appreciate everybody's support. And uh, thanks for calling in that question. Let's hear some more from you guys. Take care, everyone. Now, before I come back and take the next question, um, I wanted to just say thank you to Chef Keith, who sent a huge case of grilled chicken seasoning uh, out to the uh, permaculture event uh, so that all 32 participants in the course went home with a can of Chef Keith's uh, grilled chicken seasoning. So he's a huge supporter of the show. And uh, even though I continuously offer to buy my spices, he keeps my pantry stocked. Uh, at no cost to me as part of being a sponsor and a member of our community. Uh, so he's just an awesome guy. And uh, you guys really should take advantage of that opportunity in October uh, while it's available. And with that, let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Jack Karim from Chicago again. Question for you. Cheaper than dirt. I know that during the crisis, they were the first ones to ratchet up their prices and we're supposed to hate them. But in the post-crisis market... They are also one of the first vendors to drop their prices. The reason I ask is because I'm really tempted to buy ammo from them because they are the cheapest source for Steelcase 223, but I'm kind of torn with, you know, what they did to us in the aftermath of, you know, the new push for gun control. Thanks. Bye. I have to tell you that I don't even know why anybody's mad at Cheaper Than Dirt for ratcheting up their prices the way they did. Um... Did you see what happened to ammo during the crisis? It went crazy and it went through the roof. And many people that jacked up their prices, so to speak, didn't do it so much so they could make as much money as possible. They did it to try to preserve some inventory. Uh, when something like that happens, 
you know, there's price gouging, and that's where you just immediately get ridiculous. But there's also called what's price management, which is when orders start coming in, you just start charging more and more and more until orders stop, and then you back off to where you still get as many as you want. It's called supply and demand. Cheaper Than Dirt is probably the largest online retailer of ammunition on planet Earth. And because of that, they probably were getting more orders faster than anybody else on planet Earth. They're also a very well-run web presence, with a, and I'm sure they have a good marketing department with a lot of analytical data, and they were able to forecast what was happening and move first so that they didn't end up completely devoid of ammo, and they still did. So I don't think Cheaper Than Dirt did anything to anybody. I think that we have been led into the. And I, I think this is this is government thinking, right? Oh, stuff got really scarce, so they charge a lot of money for it, so they're bad. Really, really? How much ammo did you sell cheap during the 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 uh, the, the, uh, the ammo shortage? I'll ask that question to anybody when they tell me, "Well, these jerks they they charge you know forty bucks for a box of ammo that was normally twenty bucks." Well, did you sell anybody an ammo bo a box of ammo for twenty bucks? While it was like that, other than a buddy where you're being nice. And most of, most of us wouldn't have sold our ammo at those prices or we, we did it. Right? We, I mean, you know, so if, if normally a box of ammo was 20 bucks and it was selling for 40 bucks and, uh, we, you know, even if we didn't want to like take advantage of the market, we could have made a nice profit selling for 30, $35. Right? And you probably didn't do it. You probably held on to your ammo. What's that tell you? See, <laughs> Really, it's, it, it is government thinking. It's, it's absolutely government thinking that under so, that, that a, a, a store is under some sort of obligation not to raise pricing when demand goes through the roof. No one's victimizing you by raising their prices when more people want what they're selling. And if they're one of the qu quickest companies to lower prices after the shortage, That tells you that they did a good job of managing their business. Now, don't get me wrong. If you don't want to like cheaper than dirt, there's reasons to not like them other than the fact that they charged a lot of money for stuff that was on high demand while it was in short supply. Like some of the stuff they recommend in their email marketing is garbage. It's crap. It's junk. But the way I look at it is cheaper than dirt as a company that sells some really high-quality gear and sells some really low-end junk. They sell whatever their market wants to buy, and they're pretty good at it. And if you buy junk, well, that's because you bought junk. And it would be like saying, well, Amazon sucks because Amazon sells junk. Well, Amazon sells everything. Cheaper than dirt's like the Amazon of the tactical world. They sell everything in the tactical world and kind of the mill surf world. And they do a good job of it. And they're a good company. And I've done plenty of business with them over the years. Um, my understanding is if you have technical questions or something like that and you call them, uh, the people you get on the phone are basically idiots. And it's probably true. I don't know. I've never had to call them for that. Um, but I, I would bet that is the case. But the store, the, the, the storefront that you go to, uh, I found it to be totally different. Um, they are only probably 20 miles from where I live now. Uh, and I've lived in North Texas a long time. And uh, I've been there many times. And the people that I find there are very knowledgeable. Uh, specifically the guys behind the gun counter. Now, would I say that they are 100% spot on, you know, best consultants ever with buying a gun? No, but compared to who you're going to talk to at like a sporting goods store, man, they know their stuff. 
and they know how to do things like, yeah, you know, you don't really need this if you don't want to spend that much money. Here's a lesser-priced weapon, and here's what you're giving up. And when they give you advice like that, it's accurate, so you can make an informed decision. So I think they're a damn solid company. I think they have some damn good pricing. They have great shipping. I, again, I don't know about their service because, you know, the only service I've ever experienced with them is when they send me stuff. I've never had to use their call-in service because I've never had a problem with stuff being shipped. That's just me personally. Um, but they have some great stuff, and I've ordered from the before, and I would again. And I would get out of the mindset that somebody screwed us over because they raised prices when something was in high demand. I mean, people are not in business, folks, to lose money. They're in business to make a profit. I, I don't think what Cheaper Than Dirt did was price gouging. I think it was inventory conservation at a time when they weren't sure themselves when they would get more ammo in yet again. And I want you to think about how many of us out there probably had a box of ammo that somebody was like, hey, I'll buy that from you. And we're like, no. And they're like, oh, what would you pay for it? You're like, 25 bucks. Well, I'll give you 50 bucks for it. No. Now, they have a number that they could have got to that you would have been like, really? Yeah, here you go. 100 bucks. Okay. That's how business works, folks. A business decides how valuable its inventory is to, to them and how much they want from you to part with their inventory. They're there to serve you, but they're not obligated to, to be a, you know, a charity. They're not obligated to keep their price at any level. Get out of that. That's government thinking, man. It really is. Now, again, if the day that it started, they would have said, okay, um, a box of uh, eight-shot shotgun shells is now $550. Well, you'd say that was price gouging, Jack, wouldn't you? And I'd say, yeah. And, and, and then you'd, you know what I'd say? I don't care. And the reason is self-correcting problem. Price gouging can only occur if people are willing to pay the price, and nobody would pay $500, at least this time around, for a box of eight shot. And somebody would say, well, maybe one day you could. Well, that would just be a reason to stock up now. Um, remember, it's the people who are unprepared that buy in a crisis. And if you were buying ammo in a crisis, especially in large quantities, you got caught unprepared. Don't blame the suppliers for that. Take corrective action in your own life now so that it doesn't happen again. Hey, Jack, how are you? It's John from New Hampshire. I have a question for Ben Falk. Uh, looking to plant a cover crop up here in this climate in late August, and uh, I just want to know what kind of species I should plant, what would work for a chop and drop. And I also want to let you know the Sistema bruise is finally healed. Uh, guys, that's uh, that's John D. We'll just say his last name starts with a D uh, from New Hampshire. Good guy. Those of you who were here at the event got a chance to meet John. He was here for the uh, recent seminar. His reference to the bruise was he came to the first seminar we did, and uh, he got talked into letting me hit him uh, while we were around the campfire. And um, I gave him a little kind of a tap. And he said, no, do it for real. He's a big guy, a boxer, you know. And so I gave him a little bit more. He goes, no, do it for real. So then I... I gave him a pretty good one. It wasn't anywhere near full force or anything like that. In fact, you know, with a few adult beverages, it was it was probably a little harder than I intended. He took it pretty well, and he he said it 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 felt like being hit with a dead blow hammer, and uh, I, I felt really bad because uh, about uh, a day or two after the event was over, he posted a picture on Facebook um, that says that said I went to Jack Spirko's permaculture conference and all I got was this stupid systema bruise. And it was a picture of his stomach. 
and it was like yellow and purple and weird colors and I felt kind of bad about it, but, uh, he must not have gotten too much of a grudge because he brought me a couple bottles of really nice scotch when he, uh, came to the recent event. So anyway, we didn't get his question answered, um, in time for August, but, uh, Ben did get an answer in and I, it was my fault because of all the stuff that was going on. But I, I think I didn't really even get this question until September, late September. So, uh, hopefully John's got his cover crops in. And, uh, but this is a good question. And, uh, Ben is a great guy to give an answer. So let's hear from, uh, Ben Falk, expert council member on, uh, Northeastern permaculture on, uh, cover crop ideas for John and for others in his situation. Hey, Jack, Ben Falk here, um, addressing the question about, uh, cover crops to plant in New England in late August. Uh, your caller also mentioned, uh, the need to chop and drop, um, Some cover crops you can plant in late August, you'll be able to chop and drop depending on the weather, and some will just be a good cover crop, and you wouldn't get enough height to really chop and drop uh, until potentially spring of the following year. Uh, we've had success with planting forage peas, you know, any type of, of field peas um, from mid-August until well into September, uh, even late September as a cover crop in vegetable beds. Um I assume you're talking about vegetable beds if you're saying cover crop, um, and not so much of a, of a new, um, you know, newly established land like new pasture or new planting area. Um, buckwheat can work well if your soil temperatures are really high and you have a good warm spell for a week solid to get it germinated. Uh, it'll come up and it'll definitely winter kill, which is a real advantage if you're in a vegetable gardening situation. Uh, winter and annual rye are, are guaranteed, you know, virtually they'll come up and they're great for stabilization. So they're a big pick for us when we're stabilizing ground. So if you're building a pond or doing earthworks in late summer, then we always put a lot of winter or annual rye in our mixes um, just because they're so guaranteed. Um, but we'll also always be adding the buckwheat, the forage peas, and then tillage radish, daikon radish, um, bordered in bulk. Uh, purple top turnips are fantastic as well. We'll mix those in and then we'll mix in a wide variety of clovers and sometimes even vetch. Although all of those are, are less likely to take than in April and May, which is the best time to uh, put a lot of those down. Uh, we'll always do white clover and oftentimes uh, red clover as well and yellow blossom sweet clover. But I don't think you'd experience much success, especially on yellow blossom sweet uh, late in the summer. Um, but Our approach is always put a high diversity in, and even if it's in small quantities, and if any of it takes, uh, you're way better off for having tried. A lot of the stuff isn't very expensive at, at, um, in small quantities. Uh, make sure to inoculate with the rhizobium, the little few dollar packets of, um, of uh, associated um, root zone organisms with the clovers and the vetch and the peas as well. Um, so make sure to uh, put the inoculant in with the seed before spreading the seed. Uh, good luck to you. Hey, Jack, this is Brad from Nebraska. Hey, when the president comes out and says that if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we're going to default, hasn't he just admitted that we are, in fact, running a Ponzi scheme? And isn't that prosecutable in the court of law for the people that are running this Ponzi scheme? Because as I understood the definition of a Ponzi scheme, I can't pay out anybody until I get more of other people's money to supplement it or to pull it in. So just curious thought. Thanks. 
Well, you're assuming that the law applies to government. It doesn't. Uh, this nation uh, is often called by people that, that I would call statists as it's supposed to be a nation of laws. Um, and the reason that I call a person who says that uh, either misinformed and well-intentioned, and that's to most people, because you're just taught that in school and you believe that, is that a nation cannot be a nation of laws and, and be just. Um, a nation of laws implies that there are laws that apply to all the same uh, for justice, if that's to be the case. And it, it's not a nation of laws. Just as Congress um, passed Obamacare without reading it, but did you know enough research to know they didn't like it and exempt themselves from it, um, and the law that applies to the rest of America does not apply to them, uh, many laws are like that. And the law that you can't run a investment scheme saying that you're, you're going to pay your investors a certain amount of money and may be dependent on another investor's money to do so, uh, does not apply to government either. If it did, uh, most government programs wouldn't exist. It's not just applying to the debt. Now uh, the debt is the result of Ponzi schemes. The debt itself isn't a Ponzi scheme. Social Security is a Ponzi scheme. Medicaid is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, many public works programs are Ponzi schemes. They rely on tomorrow's money to fund today's activities. And with a foreknowledge, a flat foreknowledge, that the revenues will not be there in taxation and will have to be borrowed into existence. But that's only one phase. That's only half of the borrowing. What most people don't understand is the reason it's legal, a legal Ponzi scheme, is because monetary creation itself is a Ponzi scheme today. People say all the time, it's fiat currency, it's just printing money. It's not. It's worse. I mean, a, a, a true fiat currency, while it still sucks, would be dramatically better than what we have. Now, there's people out there going, what? I don't understand. Okay, so if I had a fiat currency and the government wanted to print money, they would just do it. The government would say we have uh, $10 trillion in circulation. We need to up the monetary supply by 10%, put a trillion dollars more. It would devalue all the money by 10%, assuming the, the economy stayed in a state of stasis and wasn't in a growth that was accounted for with the, you know, uh, with the monetary growth. Um, or if it was actually perfectly calculated, like we could trust government to do that, but if it was, it would have really no effect other than maintaining the flow of, of currency. But it wouldn't add to the debt, and it wouldn't be due back with interest. When we create new money today, we do it through borrowing. Let me put it to you a different way. If we paid off every debt the nation had, there would no longer be any money. Every dollar is a certificate for debt. So the monetary creation scheme... It's also a Ponzi scheme. Knowing that the supply will eventually choke off and knowing the money is due back with interest, we know we have to borrow again and take another creditor's money in order to satisfy current obligations. So is it a Ponzi scheme? Absolutely. Is there any argument that can be made? Well, it's they're breaking the law. No, they're actually following the law. Uh, the Federal Reserve Act of, of 1913 specified by law that this is how our money is to be created from now on. So they're actually following the law. It doesn't mean they're responsible, even within the boundaries of the law itself. It doesn't mean they're responsible, but what they're doing isn't illegal under current law. But I'd like to point out something, and, and, and this is another one of these quotes that you can you can you know go to the bank with and say Jack said this. And it, I think it really drives home something that's important to understand. 
just because something isn't unlawful doesn't mean it isn't criminal. It's not unlawful behavior, but it's criminal behavior the way that our government, the Federal Reserve, and Congress, the President, and everybody involved is running our behavior. It's criminal and it's traitorous. I mean, they call people like Edward Snowden a traitor. No, the President of the United States of America is a traitor. The Congress is a group of over 500 traitors. They're traitors to the Constitution. They're breakers of their oath. Because it's not just to follow the Constitution, but to uphold and defend it. And when you're taking our nation into a point where our very security is at risk due to irresponsible behavior with our money, you are not defending the Constitution. Every member of this government who continues the current policies of spending money we will never have is an oath-breaking traitor to the Constitution because you've broken your damn oath to defend it. And I would tell any member of Congress to their face, you are an oath-breaking traitor. And if every member of Congress would like to look me in the eye and see if I'll do it, please get in touch with me. I'm not hard to find. You are oath-breaking traitors, destroying the financial security of this generation, and more so generations yet to come. And there's nothing to be done about it until your people stop behaving like a bunch of stupid sheep and get rid of every stinking one of you. And most of the people in this nation are ignorant, stupid, lazy people who are completely okay with what you're doing. So until such time that they pull their head out of what we called in the military your fourth point of contact, I call it today your ass, until America collectively pulls its head out of its ass, I am actually obligated under my defense of the Constitution to not do much of anything about it other than speak about it. But if this country ever wants to wake up, Let me tell you the beautiful thing about our system of government. The beautiful thing about our system of government is these, these, these traitorous pricks do not have to run the country. There's no need for a bloodshed-type revolution. There's no need for an insurgency. All it takes is a people that are willing to understand how bad things are and willing to sacrifice for the future and make a choice, and stop believing the stupid, nonsensical, bullshit, complete, total, damn lie that the only thing I could do is vote for the lesser of few evils. If you're still saying that, one way or another, you're pulling the lever for a traitorous oath-breaker who is destroying the financial security of your nation. That's why I spend more time today building gardens and raising livestock and learning skills than I do talking about politics. There's nothing to be done until the ignorant, lazy people of this nation educate themselves to the financial reality of monetary creation and the sleaze that are running our nation, both in governmental office and in corporations that own their asses lock, stock, 
and barrel. So no, they're not breaking the law, but they're criminals. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Kevin from Bordentown, New Jersey. I'm at B member, first time caller. I've had an argument with my neighbors about my chickens. Um, for now, I have one. So I wanted to prove a point to everybody, and I wanted to move some of my permaculture gardening from my backyard into my front yard. And I was one. I have a peach tree that I have recently planted there, and I'm looking for your suggestion on how to build it bigger and get it ready for spring. If you could help me out with that, I would appreciate it. I'm looking for some companion planting and some permaculture-style bills. Thank you. Bye. Well, a uh, question that lets me do something productive versus just get angry. So that's great. Um, I, I don't really follow the first part of the question. I'm having an argument with my neighbor about my chicken, and right now I have one, so I wanted to prove a point. I I, I'm going to just pretend that part of the call wasn't there because I, I don't follow it. I don't know how it's germane to the question about creating a, a polyculture guild here uh, for a peach tree. And uh, I don't know that I would move my tree out in my front yard to make a point. I would move it out in my front yard if it made sense to the design of my property and to the productivity of my property. So I was going to let that go and stick to the actual question that I got out of that, which is what do I plan with my peach tree? I, I'm going to try to do this in a way that will actually give anybody out there the ability to answer that question for themselves, whether it's a peach tree or a cherry tree or a, you know, or if it's a bush or a plant. Um, there's three real questions you can ask, and when you get the answers, you'll develop a list of plants. Um, actually, I'm going to say there's uh, uh, four, uh, and maybe call it five. We're going to do uh, five questions. That, uh, that makes sense, uh, out of this question that happens all the time. I want to plant this. What do I plant with it? I'm going to plant that. What do I plant with it? And in many instances, I could give you a list of plants, but the whole purpose of permaculture is to give you a system that you can follow that leads you to your own answers, but it might require some research. The first question is, what does the plant need? What does the plant need? Now, there's, One major answer to that that actually has to do with polycultures, a little bit with water, but I mean, in, in reality, water is its own thing. But when it, when it comes to what does it need from other plants, it needs nutrients. And the biggest nutrient need that a plant has, of course, is nitrogen. So the first thing we know is it'd be great if there was a nitrogen fixer in there, some sort of leguminous plant or leguminous species that fixes nitrogen, whether it's another tree or bush or whether it's an annual nitrogen fixer that's part of an annual uh, rotation. So we know we need a nitrogen fixer. So we need to find a nitrogen fixer. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you how to figure this out, right? So then the next thing you know that the plant needs is it needs other nutrients, And the best way that a plant gets other nutrients from a natural system in a, in a guild or a polyculture, plants planted together, is from something called a dynamic accumulator. And a dynamic accumulator is a plant that is very good at getting deep in soil, and it actually comes into contact with little pieces of rock and, 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 and dust and things like that in, in the soil. And through fungal relationships and something called exates, it's actually able to, like its root touches a rock, or maybe even the fungus structure touches a rock, and it hands it off, and it gets that nutrient that another plant can't get. So one one might be, you know, manganese, right? So you know you need some dynamic accumulators, and if you knew that typically a peach tree is deficient or needs a certain 
uh, mineral or element, then you might find dynamic accumulators that accumulate those things. So if you look at common problems in peach trees, nutrient deficiency on Google, then you'll see like, well, you know, X happens to fruit trees and generally the solution is adding a little bit of, you know, this particular amendment and then find out what's in it. And if it's mostly copper, then you need a dynamic accumulator of copper. So then Google dynamic accumulators of copper. Got it? Now, I'll give you one that would go good with any tree. This is a dynamic accumulator of many nutrients, including one of the other big ones, potassium, and it's comfrey. So you can almost always stick a comfrey into a guild with a tree. It's almost always a good idea. So comfrey and other dynamic accumulators. Dynamic accumulators usually have big tap roots. Chicory is a dynamic accumulator. Um, uh, what's the other one I'm looking for? Plant, plantain uh, is, is a dynamic accumulator. Dandelions are dynamic accumulators. I'm not saying those are the ones you use. I'm saying those are dynamic accumulators. So research dynamic accumulators and figure out which ones you know accumulate the things that your plant needs or just get several dynamic accumulators to accumulate different things. You're probably on the right track. You don't have to get too scientific with this. And then the next question is, what blooms when? So we know we want predatory insects and pollinators in our yard. So when does the peach tree bloom? It would be best to have something that flowers at least before and at least after the peach tree blooms. So an early bloomer and a bloomer like right after. So find out when your peach blooms or your cherry or your you know raspberries, whatever you're planting. When does it bloom? What is its average bloom time? And try to find some things that bloom right before it and right after it at a minimum. What's even better is find, like, what's the earliest you can get something to bloom in your climate? What's the latest? Try to have something in flower all the time, especially things with small flowers, like in its second season, parsley, like fennel, like dill, Right, So anything with lots of small flowers and big flowers and little flowers mixed together. But try to have stuff in flower as long as possible. Now they can be productive plants in flower, like herbs and things you can use. Or they can just be things that add beauty or that are there just for attracting other insects. So look at bloom time. Try to stretch your bloom time out as long as possible. And realize plants don't read books. And it might say this plant blooms in June and it might actually bloom in May or July. You'll have to look and look around at what blooms. Observe and interact with your environment. So try to figure out things that will bloom through the largest part of the season so you keep the pollinators around for their predatory activity as much as possible. Then, what solar exposure do plants need? So the tree, obviously, you're not going to polyculture it with a great big oak over top of it. So you're going to put things that are smaller than a tree, but they're going to go in certain areas into the design where they won't shade the, the peach tree out, but the peach tree doesn't fully shade them out unless they do well in shade. So start asking yourself, what's available that fills these functions of dynamic accumulation and blooming and attracting of other insects that will fit in my, my layout and, and won't get shaded out or won't shade out my other plant? And sometimes that doesn't change the varieties, it just changes where you plant them. But it gets you thinking the right way. Then the next question is, what grows in my environment? Now you should have a great big list of shit, right? Now, if it doesn't grow there, right, um, you know, you're not going to plant, a, you know, an orange in New Jersey. So then you eliminate what doesn't grow and then say, of what's left, what do I want? That's how you build a guild.
That's how you build a polyculture. It's not a recipe. It's answering certain questions and requirements that the central element needs. In this case, a peach. But it could be a cherry. It could be an apple. And a cherry, an apple, and a peach might end up with almost the same guilds around them. But maybe there'll be some subtle differences. If we answer those questions, you'll find your answers. So instead of just saying, here, plant these things, what I'm trying to give you today, and this should help everybody listening, the next time you're saying, I want to put this thing here, and I don't want to isolate it and monocrop it, I want to put this interactive guild around it, ask those questions and see where it leads you. And remember, Google is your friend. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Ben in Portland, Oregon. I was just uh, wondering what, in your opinion, would cause a societal collapse of the magnitude that we see in the uh, book like uh, Patriots. I know you don't go big on that. I don't go big on it. But just sort of as an uh, intellectual exercise, I was curious, what do you think it would actually take to get that kind of um, uh, fallout to happen? Thank you very much. It's actually a much easier answer than most people, I think, would be led to believe. And it's it's probably why so many uh, novels, uh, prep or fiction novels, uh, use it as a central theme. And it, it, it comes down to it doesn't matter the why of the occurrence. But the occurrence would be, and when I say it doesn't matter the why, because there's many ways we could get there. The long-term, full-on shutdown of the energy grid across the nation with little hope of any sort of reasonable time for repair and recovery. It would be the number one thing that would destroy society as a whole because it would lead to many other scenarios that would be very, very bad for society and, and people think of as disaster scenarios. The first thing it would do is lead to massive shortages in food. It would most certainly lead to problems with disease, and most likely it result in multiple epidemics and probably pandemic as well. Um, and, and conceivably different epidemics in different areas. It would lead to um, full-on economic collapse, an economic collapse the likes of which we would probably never have without it. As bad as things are, uh, an economy is something that in many ways will find some level of equilibrium. It causes a lot of misery when it happens, when there's a readjustment or a rebasis of, of a currency, but it fixes itself even though it hurts people. It, it does continue to work because the market doesn't give a shit that government lies about it. It keeps doing what it does. As long as there's value to exchange, a means of exchange, and a way to get things from one place to another, they recover. They, it just does. But if you can't get the goods to the people or the people to the goods, then you have no basis to maintain an economy uh, of the type that we need for modern survival. Um, it would lead to massive die-offs in hospitals. It would lead to massive die-offs of people who are currently being kept alive by medicine and science. It would lead to anger, hatred, and rage, uh, the likes of which you cannot imagine. It would be the one thing that could get us to that level. I still think that it would be a massive um, upheaval, but a relatively short term of like the lawlessness. Because what would happen is the majority of people causing the problems would end up dead. They would end up dead. 
both by government, you know, jackbooted thugs and by people that are just prepared and are not going to be killed or have things, what little they have left taken from them. And I think that almost any scenario you can come up with that, that does this type of a massive shutdown, there, there is the ability to begin to bring back power. We, we know how it works. I mean, you, you, you'd almost have to evaporate all the lines and poles. Right. I mean, if you could completely eliminate the infrastructure um, or completely burn out the infrastructure, you might get there. Um, you know, if we had a, a coronal mass ejection, a CME that was so intense that it did what it you know did back in the 1800s, the telegraph lines and basically set them on fire and melted them to the ground so that you have to you have to go out and run new lines and you have no power to create new. Co- I mean, that that would be a, a massive, massive problem. But. Though, though a lot's made of that occurrence, and though there's a lot to learn from that occurrence, and though it does show our vulnerability, the electrical grid today is not the same as the telegraph line of the 1880s. Um, you know, there's, they, they, they do know about these things in, in engineering school, and they do plan for them. But that would be the one. If there's anything that will do it, it's that one. Because the pandemic eventually peters out. An economic collapse eventually corrects. Um, a war even eventually ends. Full-on destruction of the power infrastructure of a nation like ours, with so many people dependent on it, even though eventually I even believe even that would be rebuilt. Um, if anything's going to take us there, that's what's going to do it. And it's why uh, there's a lot of concern over cyber hacking, especially of the electrical grid. And... Uh, Frankly, it's why I'm happy Texas has its own independent grid. It could basically shut itself off from the, the two main grids uh, and run itself. It's a, it's a good thing to have and a good thing to know. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. But if, if it's going to happen, that's the most likely uh, scenario, I believe. Uh, it's the most realistic scenario. And, um, yeah, the, everything you could think of as being a disaster, gets caused by that. Now, an economic collapse that gets bad enough could lead to grid failures, but I don't think it leads to grid failure, and those are two different things. Grid failures are places and times and points of failure of the grid. Uh, grid failure is the grid is gone and not coming back. Take the grid down and have it not come back, and does it look like Patriots? Probably not. Is it as bad as the scenarios laid out for the average person? Probably so. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. My name is Eric. Okay, I want to be an informed citizen. I'm looking for an unbiased news source, if such a thing exists. So my question to you is, what news sources do you pay attention to? Thanks for everything you do. Bye. Um, let me put it to you this way. If you want the truth, you have to stop being a little bird that is waiting for another bird to come and puke information down your throat the way a bird feeds its babies. There is no source of news or media out there that is 100% unbiased, including my source, me, right? I don't mean my sources, I get information, but for me, I am biased. I have my own belief systems. I have my own perception bias. I have my own degree of normalcy bias. We all have some normalcy bias. Normalcy bias is a horrible thing. 
It gets you killed. Normalcy bias, as we see in a movie, when like the freaking forest fire is going to burn the farm down and they're trying to get grandma out of the rocking chair and she's like, it'll all be fine and knitting. And there's like normalcy bias is a huge problem in America and we have a ton of it in our population, but we all have some because it keeps us from being crazy. Right? You can go the other way. If you had no normalcy bias and everything's dangerous, then you know you live under a rock. So our own normalcy bias to one degree or another can impact our perception bias and our own knowledge creates a perception bias. Okay? So everybody has bias. Most people will say something stupid like we're fair and balanced, and they're not. Every human being has bias. And every human being has an agenda. My agenda happens to be to help you be prepared. The media's agenda in general, including most alternative media that's even largely honest about certain things, is that the agenda is to make sure people pay attention so they can make money. I figured out if I forgot about that, if I just didn't worry about that, if I didn't try to make money, I didn't try to get you to pay attention, and I just went out and did the right thing, that people would pay attention, I would be successful. It worked. So I don't have that agenda bias when it comes to making money, but I still have the agenda bias that I want you to be prepared. So even I have that. So in the world where most people are just trying to make sure they still have a job tomorrow or the company's still in business tomorrow, it's worse. So the way you get this information is to first and foremost ask yourself a question. What do I want to know? The first problem people have with media bias and bullshitters in media, and I actually I think I put in the show notes today, you know, how do I get good information in a world full of bullshitters in media is within the show notes. That's what they are. Most of them are, you're right, they're complete bullshitters. Um, the, the first load of bullshit they give you, though, isn't that they don't give you true information. They tell you what you want to know. And you go, okay, I need to know about this. So the first question you have to ask is, what do I want to know? And they go get the information from any and all sources. Because the, the, the answer to what media sources do I pay attention to is none of them and all of them. Right. So what I mean by that is you have to act like a police detective. Right. You have to ask like a police detective. Let's say that as a police detective, you knew there were certain witnesses to a crime you were trying to solve. Even if you knew that nobody would lie to you, you knew it for some reason, you know, that they were all going to be honest. You'd still talk to all of them because you know their perception bias And their level of accuracy would vary based on their recollection and how important it was to them when they saw or heard something. So a person might give you an eyewitness account of your suspect while he was fleeing. But if that person didn't know the suspect was fleeing or just didn't give a shit, they don't really care. But since you asked, they'll tell you their description might not be that accurate. Got it? Not because they want to lie to you, because when the guy ran by, they noticed him, but they didn't really pay attention. Where the person that saw the guy shoot somebody, and, and their heart sunk in their chest, would be more accurate. Okay, So the detective will talk to everybody, including people that don't think they know anything. They'll get information that doesn't seem to be directly related to the case. And in the end, they'll compile the case... And they'll make the case 
that so-and-so did the following things, and if they can do that, they'll obtain a warrant and go arrest them. This is how you have to be with media. Most media isn't accurately lying to you. They're bullshitting you. They're giving you the truth as they see it based on the facts that they have and the agenda that accompanies it. So if you want the truth about the, the, the current state of the economy in the European Union, you need to know what MSNBC and CBS are saying. You need to know what Fox News is saying. You need to see, you know, Russia Today is saying. You need to know what maybe's on the Kaiser Report, what Max Kaiser and Gerald Salenti are saying. See what Market Ticker guy's saying, right? See what uh, uh, Seeking Alpha is saying. You find all the sources you can on what's going on. And everybody has their own view, and then you take that information in because you've decided you want to know about the European Union financial crisis. Not because the TV told you you do. And then you have to say, what's related to this? If my suspect supposedly robbed this convenience store, he had to get here. Where was he before this? How did he get here? That's part of my case. So it may be that you look at the European Union and go, well, what is this going to do to the price of energy and what's currently going on with energy? And what I'm saying is you have to think. No one can put all the pieces of a puzzle together for you unless you're letting them ask the question for you in the first place. All they can do is give you their perception based on their bias, their agenda, their knowledge of the facts, and their ability to discern the truth. And it's then up to you to use logic and reason to make your own determination, not only on what the truth is, but how it affects you, if it affects you, and if it really matters to you. And that's the only honest answer that anyone would ever give you to that question, but they would have to even know that's the case before they would. So I could give you a list of media, and I kind of sort of did, but my answer is really every bit of information you can gather on the source. Because I don't have time for all that. You do if you're only gathering the information on the questions that are currently important to you. Well, how do I know what questions are importantly important to me? I don't know. Ask some. Research some. They'll lead you to other questions. You become a fully realized human being, able to think and discern answers largely for yourself and use information like mine and other sources to fine-tune your own needs and wants and desires. And you'll be better not just at getting information about the world, but solving your own problems, surviving your own disaster scenarios, and in your professional and personal and social lives as well. Folks, this is what we should be teaching people in school. But if you do that, they start to ask and ask questions, and they start to question authority. And if you want a nation full of sheeple that elects a Congress and government full of traitors, you can't have that, can you? This is what you should teach your children. This is what you should teach your children. Don't tell your children, just watch the news, Johnny, and learn what's going on. Watch the news with your kids and say, out of everything you heard, what's the most important thing to you out of what you heard tonight? How do you think it affects you? Now, let's, let's Johnny, let's go and let's find out more about that by finding out everything we can and making our own conclusion because do you trust that nice man or woman on TV? And if they say yes, they don't ever do that again. And explain what I've explained to you to that child. 
They might not even be lying. They might just be wrong. It's up to us to find out for ourselves if we think this issue is important, what the truth is, so that we can do the right things. And since most of you listening to me didn't have parents that knew that, they weren't bad. They didn't know. My parents didn't know. When I started this show five years ago, I didn't know to answer this question that way. But now that you know, you have to do it for yourself. A lot of you are doing it every day, but you didn't know that's what you were doing. But now you know. And now you can fine-tune it. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.